Please turn with me in your Bibles to Gospel of Matthew, chapter 5. Matthew, chapter 5, we're looking this morning at verses 21 through 26. We're continuing in our study of the Sermon on the Mount, teaching from our Lord Jesus Christ, uh, from Matthew, chapters 5, 6, and 7. Today, chapter 5, verse 21, hear the Word of God. You have heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says, You fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. So if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First, be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are going with him to court lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard and you be put in prison. Truly I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for your word and now as we think about it and study it together, we pray for the assistance of your Holy Spirit Pray, Father, for minds and hearts that are open to receive this truth. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. In the verses just prior to the passage we're looking at today, Jesus set the tone for what was to follow in the rest of chapter 5. In verse 17, when he said, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law of the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Well, we said, well, why would, why would someone think that? Why would that question even arise? And it seems that there were those who wondered if by Jesus' teaching, not only what he taught, but how he taught, uh, that he was coming to put into place something radically new. A hard break with what went before, and, and Jesus says to them, no, that is not my purpose at all. I'm not here to abolish the law. Rather, I'm here to accomplish it. I'm here to fulfill it. And so as we look at Jesus' teaching in in this verse, 21, and the verses that follow, Jesus returns back to the law, the Ten Commandments that we looked at uh, a few minutes ago, read a few minutes ago, and he begins to teach it. He begins to explain it. He begins to give them... Uh, a new hearing of the law. Not a replacement of the law, not a new law, but a new hearing of it, a new understanding of it. And so as we move into these verses, we see that there is a new hearing, a new declaration, a new teaching or expounding of the law of God, not abolishing it, but explaining it, explaining how it applies in all of its richness. Because you see, there's a way to be very righteous. 
there's a way to think of yourself pretty highly. And that is to take the commands we find in Scripture, and even if we don't explain them away, to reduce their scope to such a level that we can reasonably easily meet its demands, pat ourselves on the back, and think ourselves to be pretty righteous people. Well, that's in fact what was going on in Jesus' day. A, a interaction with the law on a merely surface level, a merely superficial understanding, so that certainly as Jesus goes through these various areas of anger, lust, divorce, oaths, and so forth, he obviously does not take exception to the fact that the law should govern our outward behavior. We'll look at that. But Jesus also goes on to say that the law of God doesn't end with just our outward behavior or even just the outward behavior that other people see in us. It, it goes much deeper. It goes much further than that. And so there's a new hearing of the law here that certainly governs our outward behavior, but it also governs our hearts. And there's a new authority here in, in, that the people heard in Jesus' presence and in Jesus' teaching. Uh, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder. Now, Jesus here is quoting from the Old Testament. Now, the new authority that Jesus exhibited uh, was partly in contrast to the scribes and Pharisees, the teachers that the people were used to, whose teaching was, was very much derivative, often consisted of a string of quotations from prior rabbis, from earlier tradition. And there's nothing wrong with that. I like to quote people, quote people you would recognize as authoritative or people who have high standing in the church. Sometimes they put things very well and in a striking way. And it really does help sometimes to hear how other people have put it or what they have to say. But if I got up here and just gave you a string of quotations from one person or another, you'd finally say, well, fine, but what do you have to say? So uh, that was something of the flavor of the teaching that people received. Now, of course, even my preaching is not with my own authority. It is derivative. Ultimately, I'm quoting and explaining the scriptures, God's word, best quotation of all, uh, which is why we always have a sermon text. Why well, I don't get up and just start talking about whatever I want to talk about. The authority and the truth is in scripture, God's word. And so hopefully my sermons are derived from scripture. Uh, but in Jesus' day, not only would they teach the Old Testament, but I would, they would filter it very much through what others have said. But Jesus comes to them with a new formula. Not even just Rabbi uh, Ben-Hadad said this. Not even uh, saying, thus says the Lord, as the prophets, legitimate prophets of the Old Testament would say. Jesus comes and says, I say to you because he couldn't say he could say I guess thus says the Lord but he himself is the Lord who said who saith so he is the one who can say I say to you he doesn't have to say he's speaking the word of another he is speaking the word of God and the people caught that note of authority in fact if you turn over to Matthew 7 uh, the end of the chapter verse 28 and 29 at the end of the Sermon on the Mount it was that note of authority that struck the people when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. So 
There's a new hearing, a new expounding of the law here. There is a new authority in Jesus' teaching, both in what he said and how he said it, that caught the people's attention. And as we read through this passage and the ones that are to come, Jesus' exposition of the law, we need to pray that God would speak to us, that we would hear that same authority, not from me, but from Jesus in his word speaking to us. Because this transcends the the climate of current opinion. This transcends the buzz of blogs and newscasts and internet news reports, everything else, the opinion, the perspective of man. There is an authority here that is divine. This is what God is saying, and therefore it is to be heard, and therefore it is to be obeyed. We do not sit in judgment of these words. These words, God's words, sit in judgment of us. We do not evaluate God's word, whether we will accept it or reject it, but God's word sifts us. It examines and probes our hearts, and it convicts us of sin, and it teaches us God's standard, and of course God's grace providing for us to meet that standard in Christ. So let's look then specifically at what Jesus is saying here. The um, ESV has a sub or a heading here, anger, and he does speak about anger. But I think the overall theme of this passage has to do with reconciliation, with an eye toward the sixth commandment, you shall not murder. Now you may think, well, that's a long leap from murder to reconciliation. How do you get there? Well, let's look at what Jesus says. In the first place, in, the, in verses 21 and 22, Jesus addresses the meaning of the law, the meaning of the sixth commandment. Jesus says, uh, first, the statement of the law. You have heard that it was said to those of old, and we read the passage where it was said, Exodus 20, you shall not murder. By the way, you shall not kill uh, can be misunderstood. The point is not that there should never be any taking of any life or even any taking of any human life. Uh, the Bible, I think, does give grounds, in fact, explicit statement, Genesis, uh, I believe, 9, that if someone takes the life of another human being, then the authorities have the right to take his life, not because life is cheap, but precisely because life is valuable. Uh, so in the case of the state exercising its God-given calling to, to uphold justice, in the case of uh, military uh, action, uh, again, on the state level of defense, protection, uh, even on a personal level of self-defense. The scriptures and the case law gives the, the right uh, and sometimes the necessity of taking the life of another human being. You shall not murder uh, is different. It's to the point. It's saying you are not to go and attack and put to death another human being out of your own anger, out of malice, out of whim, whatever that might be. And so that's a, that's a more proper translation. You shall not murder this violation of the life of another. And whoever murders will be liable to judgment. Of course, the, the Ten Commandments is the, the, the bare-bones statement of the law. And you know, if you've read on through Exodus, uh, read Leviticus, the Euronymy, that there were case laws, there was uh, other uh, illustrations, examples, applications of the law given, 
that indicated the punishments that were to be rendered for various transgressions of the law. And certainly if someone commits murder, uh, they would be liable to judgment. Human judgment, yes, and divine judgment to be sure. Now, that's the statement. In verse 22, uh, and Jesus agrees with it. He, does, he says, but I say to you. Now, he doesn't say, now I, but I say to you, that's not right. He does not take exception to the law. Uh, what he does take exception to is the scribes and Pharisees minimizing the law, truncating the law to the point where they viewed it merely in terms of bare, the bare act of murder. Where if I have never murdered someone, if I have never taken the life of another human being, then I have kept the commandment. Now, on a surface level, that's certainly true. However, the implication of the Sixth Commandment goes much, much farther than just the mere act of murder. And that's what Jesus goes on to explain. It's not as if we've refrained from spilling the blood of another that we are entirely clear as far as this commandment is concerned. And Jesus disagreed with that, the teaching of the rabbis that way. The true application was much broader, much deeper. It included the thoughts, the words, the attitudes of our heart. And that's what Jesus goes on to explain. Verse 22, But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. And so Jesus agrees with the statement of the law, but he goes on to give the fuller implication of the law here. It really comes down into three parts, and let's look at those. Uh, He says, everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Now, if you're looking at the King James Version, or New King James Version, uh, it will read, whoever is angry with his brother without cause. In other words, for no reason. Now, it's, it's extremely likely that those words were added later to soften the statement that Jesus makes here. Uh, however, I do think that the, that, that sentiment is, is valid. Uh, Jesus isn't saying that we should never, ever be angry about anything at any time with anyone. After all, Jesus himself, demonstrated anger. Uh, we think about Jesus' anger uh, driving out the money changers in the temple. Uh, we think about Jesus calling the Pharisees and teachers of the law blind fools. You know, well, Jesus, are you, you, know, you being inconsistent? Or, or at worst, are you sinning? Are you violating your own uh, explanation of the law of God? Well, let's think about Jesus' anger for just a minute. What does Jesus get angry about? What offends Jesus? Well, certainly, there's a place for anger at sin. There's a place for anger at injustice. The difference is that you and I, when we get angry, tend to get most angry about what we perceive to be attacks on ourselves or slights of ourselves or offenses that we take personally. In other words, it's a blow to our egos. And we get really angry at that. Jesus never had his ego on the line in any recorded instance of being angry. His anger had to do with the defilement of the the court of the Gentiles, with the money changers. 
the only place that the nations, the Gentiles, had in the temple uh, where they could go. Uh, Jesus' anger had to do with those who were misleading and misteaching the people of God. The very shepherds who should have been feeding and protecting and providing for them were using the people of God uh, and were leading them into error, into false teaching, into an inadequate understanding of the law and certainly an inadequate understanding of, of God's grace, which was there in the Old Testament all along. It's very telling that at that time when Jesus himself was most threatened, when if at any time Jesus' ego should be attacked, he wasn't angry. And that was in the events leading up to his crucifixion, when Jesus was unjustly arrested, when he was unfairly tried, when he was illegally beaten, when he was spit upon, when he was crucified, when he was mocked, when he had every reason on a personal basis to be angry and lash out, at those who were treating him in this way, he said, Father, forgive them because they don't know what they're doing. You see, Jesus' anger was more concerned about the glory of God and the well-being of the people of God and the salvation of the nations who were under the judgment of God than it was his own ego and his own protection and his own standing. How different it is with you and with me who tend to be angry about things that we should let go and tend not to be bothered much at all about things that really should make us angry. And so when we look at Jesus' anger, we need to recognize he's not violating the command here. He's not doing anything that uh, would be contrary to the law of God. There are other passages dealing with anger. Ephesians 4, uh, 26 and 27, Be angry and yet do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. Uh, A tall order for us. Uh, James, uh, in James chapter 1, verses 19 and 20, says we should be slow to anger. He says the anger of man does not bring about the righteousness that God requires. And it's true. We get angry. We tend to lose control. We do things. We say things we later have to repent of, later have to apologize for, later regret. We should be slow to anger. We should be very careful when we feel anger coming on that we do not allow that very powerful emotion and legitimate emotion to drive us into sinful behaviors. And so Jesus says, whoever is angry with his brother in this way, in a, in a contemptuous way, in a vindictive way, will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to counsel. Now that's an interesting one because in some translations render it this way. Whoever says, raka, which was an Aramaic word that means you empty head, you airhead. Uh, a modern equivalence might be you nitwit, you blockhead, you numbskull, you bonehead. Um, the commentators seem to have great fun coming up with synonyms for uh, what Jesus has in mind here. Uh, but again, treating someone with contempt. Or, he goes on to say, whoever says you fool will be liable to the fires of hell, to the hell of fire, to Gehenna. Uh, In other words, the trash dump outside of Jerusalem that was always smoldering, always burning, kind of became a a, a metaphor for hell. And Jesus is saying, whoever says you fool, literally the word from which our word moron comes. Now, raka had the idea of, of someone being stupid, intellectually deficient. 
you fool here has the idea not just of what we might say as someone who's not thinking, but someone who's not, not only intellectually but morally deficient. Someone who is even denying the existence of God. Psalm 14, 1. The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. And so it might be fair to say that these are both terms of contempt. One is insulting the intelligence of a person. The other would be insulting the, the heart or the character of a person. Uh, some synonyms might be a scoundrel, a rascal, a ne'er-do-well, someone whose character is questionable, whose integrity uh, is cast into shadow. Well, what's Jesus saying here? Well, he's saying that the Sixth Commandment not only prohibits the, the murder of someone, the taking of their life, their physical life, but it involves the attitude of our heart toward them, uh, anger toward them, unjustified anger at that person, a, a hatred even of that person, a hostility toward them, uh, abusive, contemptuous thoughts or words toward that person. It kind of, if we want to put it this way, it kind of comes down to the attitude, I wish you were dead. I wish you were out of the picture. I wish you were out of my way. I wish you were dead. That, too, is a violation of the Sixth Commandment, you shall not murder. Now, I'd commend to you the exposition in the Westminster Shorter Catechism and particularly the Westminster Larger Catechism because it, it not only explains all that's prohibited by the commandment, but I think rightly and first says what the commandment calls for on a physical level, doing all we can to protect the life of a fellow human being, but also inwardly doing all we can to cultivate a spirit of respect toward that person, even if it's someone with whom we greatly disagree, uh, of, of a general uh, benevolence toward that person in our hearts. And that's not easy to do. That, that requires the grace of God, and yet that too is what is called for by the Sixth Commandment. Now, Jesus goes on then, having given an explanation of the law, it's fuller implications, he goes on then to give a couple of illustrations of application of the law, uh, a couple of illustrations for us here. Verse 23, So, he says, since this is true, if you are offering your gift at the altar, and there remember your brother has something against you, Leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother, and then come offer your gift. Now, first is an illustration from church. Jesus says, if you've gone to church and you're there to sing God's praises, you're there to worship him, come to take communion, and you remember that your brother has something against you, or a sister has something against you, something you said, something you did, something you didn't do, that you should have done, whatever it might be, the priority is to get right with that person. Even to the point of leaving what you're doing and going to the person and, and, and as the case may be, asking for forgiveness or granting forgiveness to do all you can to be right with the Lord. We just finished a communicants class with our junior age children, fourth, fifth, sixth grade children, and in talking about the Lord's Supper, one of the things we talk about, how do you prepare for the Lord's table? Because communicants class, the purpose is to prepare them for communing membership, which means taking communion. Simple. Uh, so we say, how do you prepare? Well, obviously, first, there's the concern to be right with God. If there is sin in your life, sin in your heart, uh, that you need to confess to the Lord, you do that. You want to come to the table, not perfect, not sinless, to be sure, 
but not holding on to sin, not harboring or cherishing sin in your heart. And so certainly confessing to God. But then thinking on the horizontal level, is there someone, maybe a a brother or sister in Christ, maybe a, a literal brother or sister, that I need to go and apologize to? Or is there someone who has wronged me, I've been angry toward, and I need to go to that person and ask their forgiveness for my attitude, for my cold shoulder, for my behavior toward that person? Paul says, insofar as it's possible with you to live at peace with all men, uh, they may or may not respond in the way you might desire. But you can't control their response. You can only control your reaction, your behavior toward them. And so you go and try to make things right. And that's so important, Jesus said, that you leave your gift at the altar, you leave your offering to God, and you go first and get right with that person and then come back. Um, D.A. Carson puts it well. This is a quotation. The latter, uh, he says, the religious duties has become a pretense and a sham if the worshiper has behaved so poorly that his brother has something against him. Men love to substitute ceremony for integrity, purity, and love. But Jesus will have none of it. How can we come and worship God? How can we come and bathe in the grace and forgiveness of God when we ourselves are not willing to forgive others? Well, the second illustration Jesus gives us from the law court, or being on the way to the law court, the fear of the law court, verse 25. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you're going with him to court lest your accuser hand you over to the judge, the judge, the guard, and you'll be put in prison. Truly I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. Now we could read into this God's sentence, the sentence of hell, but I think that's not what Jesus is getting at. He's saying if you go into court, you don't know what's going to happen. It could be bad for you. might be thrown into prison until your debt is paid. And of course in that day, in that context, uh, if you were in prison, you had no way of going out and earning the money to pay off your debt, so you pretty much sat there and rotted unless others had pity on you, family members, loved ones, helped raise the money to pay to get you out of prison. And so Jesus is saying you don't know what bad thing could happen if this goes through better to settle, to be reconciled, to fix this before it comes to that point. And that too applies whether we're talking about a literal court case uh, or more likely, just the outcome of an ongoing feud, of an unresolved, unreconciled relationship. Jesus is saying, you don't know what could happen. It's better to go ahead and get reconciled with that person. So two illustrations that Jesus uses to show us how this applies. Now, I want to close by just thinking for a minute about the rich young ruler. You know, he came to Jesus said, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And uh, Jesus says, well, you know the commandments. And he goes on to list some, including you shall not murder. And the young man says, well, I've kept all of these from my youth. Jesus says, okay. Go and sell you what you have and give the proceeds to the poor and come and follow me. Which I believe Jesus was putting him to the test on commandment number one. You shall have no other gods before me. Go and sell all you have. Give the money away. Reduce yourself to poverty. And come follow me and gain the pearl of great price, great value. Wouldn't do it because he had such possessions. 
And Jesus let the man walk away because he loved his stuff more than he loved Jesus. And he wasn't willing to part with his stuff to have Jesus and therefore to have eternal life. Now, as we think about that rich young ruler, sometimes our attitude is the same. I've, come, I've kept the sixth commandment. I've never murdered anyone. I've never taken the life of another in malice, in injustice. Perhaps you haven't. But according to what Jesus says, I dare say that you have violated the sixth commandment. I know I have. And I suspect that you have as well. Now, is it worse to actually murder someone than it is to hate them and to think of them with contempt? Absolutely. I mean, I think Scripture tells us that and common sense tells us that. It is worse to actually kill someone with all the implications that has for their family, their loved ones, their friends, you, your family, the law. Obviously, that's much worse. But to hate them in your heart, to hold contempt for that person, to think of them as a fool, to think of them as a bonehead, is to violate the sixth commandment. And to violate the sixth commandment is to bring eternal guilt on your head that will put you in hell forever. Thank God for Christ, who bore for you, for me, for all who believe in him, that guilt upon himself when he died, accursed for it on the cross. We have to go to the Lord. We have to ask forgiveness. You know those for whom you need to ask forgiveness, those you have hated and held in contempt. You know your attitude that you need to confess to the Lord and, and plead the blood of Christ for your cleansing and your forgiveness. And you know those you need to go and get right with. And that's the first application is simply to acknowledge our guilt and seek God's grace in Christ. The second is there may be people right now that you need to get right with, that there are ill feelings there, there's tension there, maybe just outright animosity there, and you need to do what you can to make that better. How can you be here worshiping God when there are others you have alienated by your behavior? You need to go to them and seek their forgiveness, and if necessary, give them your forgiveness. And then third, by way of application, be careful to obey. Be careful to watch your heart attitude toward others. Certainly your outward actions, certainly your words, but watch your heart. Watch how your heart responds to other people, even people you don't like, even people who are treating you shabbily. If the Lord Jesus could look at those who were in the act of abusing him and murdering him and say, Father, forgive them, then surely by his grace, you and I can look at other people, even people who are not easy to love, with benevolence, with kindness, with grace. And so we show ourselves to be children of our Heavenly Father and brothers and sisters of the Lord Jesus. Let's pray. Father, a tall order to be sure, and given our fallen sinful hearts, made even more difficult. Lord, we do pray for forgiveness for the sinfulness of our hearts, with regard to this commandment, we pray for you to cover us with the righteousness of Christ, to cleanse us with the blood of Christ. Lord, give us grace and the humility and the strength to go to another and apologize and be able to say, I was wrong, will you please forgive me? Or I have wronged you and I ask your forgiveness 
or you have wronged me, and I, I, I grant you forgiveness. And Father, give us grace here on out to live as your people. Lord, it's hard. Our hearts can be critical, quick to judge, quick to be angry, quick to condemn another. But work on our hearts. Lord, instruct us by your word. Strengthen us with your grace. Soften us by your spirit to truly show the graciousness and the benevolence of the Lord Jesus toward those around us. And Lord, give us grace to be angry about the things that make you angry. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.